What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome in to episode 243 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike, and this episode is brought to you by Dream Symbols. Oh, mid-season form. (laughs) Holy mackerel. How are you, buddy? Decent. 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 Are you keeping up with uh, The Last Dance? No. Uh, I actually, I have no interest in watching it. Actually, I okay. hate using the word actually. I think that's like instant. Like, Okay, um, let me try this. Hey, man, do you have any interest? Have you been keeping up with The Last Dance? <laughs> I have not. I've been avoiding the TV pretty much okay. in general. In nice. sports in particular, I just have no interest in it right now. I don't know why, yeah, man. I, once everything shut down, I'm like, I don't want to. I just, I'm just done with it. And when it comes back, cool. But it's strange, and I think it's kind of the same with music in a way. Like, uh, what is it I doing gotta say for this. Me? I'm actually, oddly enough, I'm finding myself over Instagram as, as a as, not as a business. I mean, I know that I still have to post every once in a while. But it used to actually be a part of my day that it wasn't like an addiction. I truly enjoyed it because I. We've talked about it on the podcast a few times, but I tried to make sure that I saw Instagram as a museum that I could curate and I could move all the art that I loved into one place. Mm-hmm. And I could take all the art and not follow it that I didn't like. And it yeah. wasn't inspirational, but it's not inspirational to me anymore. It's so much stuff. And I'm like, just because you're home, it doesn't mean you have to press record. And <laughs> I, I just I got to say that what's happening, it's not as inspirational as it used to be. And I don't know. I'm trying to find out. Well, what was inspirational to me in the first place? Because I felt a very gradual progression as someone that went through this. And maybe you could see it through a different lens. But I went from what you and I grew up with, which was books and private drum instruction. And Mm -hmm. then we went to videotapes and private drum instruction and books. Then we made the move to DVDs, which had extras. And we got to see, I remember those first modern drummer videos, seeing... Tony Royster warming up and Horacio's watching him warm up yeah. and Ed Thigpen's backstage. Right, right. That was like a new level of, oh my gosh, I just saw the pros when they didn't know they were on camera. Right. Then we went to MySpace, made that transition. It was kind of weird. Then we went to YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. All of it felt really gradual to me. And I was actually quite inspired by all of it. And then just in this quarantine time, it was like, man, I just can't handle I'm just kind of sick of it. It's just so much stuff. Uh, and so I don't know what's going on. That's, I mean, I was talking to a buddy of mine about that. It's it's, this whole situation I think is making us really rethink what, what we're, what we're actually doing. (laughs) You know, what is the meaning of life ultimately? Because we just had all of our 
distractions removed from us. Like for me, it's like every weekend gigs of preparing for gigs. Nine times out of ten, it's gigs I don't really care that much about. <laughs> you know, it's just right. It's, it's your job. Just gigs. I'm it's just part working. Of the job. Yeah. Or keeping, you know, practicing really hard just to make sure I have a certain level of proficiency to play certain music that I know I have to play. That's all gone. So now I'm having to think, like, well, well, okay, what really am I doing? Why do I play the drums? Why do I feel a need to pick up a bass guitar once a day and practice for a while? What's the point? Mm. And Instagram, it's similar for me. It's becoming, like, it's just a distraction with no purpose. I'm not, and I actually went, actually, I just did it again. I'm not going to use the word actually anymore. Um, I went through the this past is, week and started wonderful. unfollowing hundreds of accounts. Just, yeah. I felt like I needed to just get rid of stuff that I wouldn't necessarily care about unless well, it's in my face. That's a, a thing that's been changing is I'm actually sticking with the people where I actually enjoyed their life and I like to know a little bit about them or maybe they're bringing something positive to my day, but you know, what Instagram used to be is it would be I'd play drums and I'd be teaching drums and filming drums throughout the day. And then I'd check Instagram and it was the inspiration to get me back on the drums because I would see all my friends playing and mm. they were doing these really creative things and really cool things. And now it's just like I I feel like it's more disingenuous than it used to be. And that's a weird thing to say about Instagram because the whole thing is fake and virtual. And we know that and we know that we're, <laughs> yeah. we're we're kind of curating our own fake life to be like, this is how it is. It's just me and a dog, and we're always happy. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, and, and I only show it when it's sunny. It, you know, it's never <laughs> rained here in Folsom. So we know that, but now it's just this attention grab. Like, hey, hey, I know you're stuck at home, so please watch me. I know you're stuck at home, so please buy yeah. this. Please sign up for yeah, this. I'm like, once oh, this God, I'm going to barf. became a marketing angle, that's when I checked out. Like, if you're going to sell me crap because I don't have a job or because I'm stuck at home. That's – okay. I think I'm we're like, hitting it because that's what I'm feeling is like my marketing uh, – and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think that this is what I've tried to do, but – it's really rare that on Instagram, on a main post, I'll say, hey, guys, if you get a chance, sign up for Mike'sLessons.com. That's not how I ever attack it. It's always like Instagram's giving me a platform to showcase my teaching ability for 60 seconds. If you liked it, I hope that you'll dig deeper and type into Google Mike Johnston, drum lessons, something like that. And that organic marketing machine will take place. But as soon as the post starts off with, I know you're stuck at home right now. And it's yeah. like, well, I'm not. <laughs> you, you're misinformed, bro. I'm not stuck at home. And so it's like, oh, man, I, I just wish you were trying to inspire me rather than sell me. So Stop. And <laughs> Welcome I, into episode I'm, 294. We know you're stuck at home and you have nothing better to <laughs> no, do. No, <laughs> I feel like you're jogging right now. And it's sunny and everything's great. Hey, by the way, dude, it, it's this is episode two forty three. I started jogging this week. Oh, and I haven't ran without some kind of sport or activity involved in twenty security guard chasing five you. years. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's so, a while. Yeah, I think okay. I just needed to torture myself a little bit more during all this craziness. No, I Man, started to feel I, like stir crazy a couple like last week, and it was like yeah. eleven in the morning. I just was like, I couldn't settle. I couldn't focus. I couldn't get my work day really kind of rolling. I'm like, I'm just going to go run. So I just did. And it hurt. Yeah. But then did it again. It hurt, but not quite as much. So I'm going to go again today. And see. Nice. <laughs> Man, I, I think you'll probably, and you're more in tune or in touch with this stuff than I am. So I'm sure you'll, you've already found this out. But you think you're doing it for fitness, but it's for mental fitness. My bike rides every day have nothing to do with my cardiovascular mm. system. Like, I just need to get outside and wait and just kind of cycle and cycle and cycle. And then all of a sudden your brain hits this zone and it's like, okay, I can feel things getting moved to the recycle bin and we're pressing empty on the crap that just doesn't really matter. And yeah. then, you know, I usually try to go, I don't really care about miles. Like I don't keep track of that stuff, but I do try to be out for at least an hour. By the time I get back, I'm like, Oh, okay. Now, now let's get some work done. Uh, well, let's yeah. take a shower and then get some more. It's going to so take I'm with me you, a man. while to get to the point of running for an hour. I, it's basically well, I'm running cycling's my a little different. Bleeding and then <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, it's been and then you turn around. Twelve minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm. Trust me, there's a lot of downhill where I'm not pedaling. So that takes up. I would say that takes up half hour of the time. All right, let's talk drums. <clears throat> I had a virtual drum camp this weekend. It was number two, and we talked about this last week, I believe. But on the first virtual camp. 
I did the whole thing in one day. Yep. That was rough. And then this time I split it up into two days, mainly so not just for myself, but so that people overseas could sign up. So I don't know if you saw the post on Instagram, but I got here at 5.30 a.m., started mm. warming up, started practicing, get the body going. And then it takes me about a half hour to really get everything fully dialed for the cameras and make sure all the tech is working. You know, the difference is in a normal live lesson or a live stream, we run on batteries. Since this is going for five hours straight, we have to have everything has to be plugged in. So yeah. going through all that, making sure that everything that does run on batteries is fully charged. And then we get the students in and we make sure that they can see everything. And then we go. And it was so, so much better having it broke up over two days. But I but in a way that I wasn't prepared for. The main reason to do it was for the time slots of like now everyone in Europe can sign up. Yeah. I had no idea how beneficial it was going to be for them to be like, thank you for stopping there because I, I can't handle any more information. Oh, and that was just after three classes. Yeah, that's like know? that's similar to going to PASIC. You know, you go to like two or three clinics and really you're done and there's like four like, Can I just fly home? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and especially if the one of the ones you went to was really impactful to you and you're like, man, I don't want some random clinic that's amazing – to cover this up because this is the yeah. information I really want. I don't want to lose track of this moment right That's now. That's very true. Or like um, the one that you know that like for me, like seeing Jack DeJunet at five o'clock at PASIC is like the worst because I, yeah. at that point in the day, I don't want to hear anything else. And I know that I need to go see him and I know right. I'm not going to enjoy it as much as I should. <laughs> or accept it or retain it. I think yeah. the retaining, you know, and that's when we did this pretty much the way I broke it up was day one was vegetables. Day two was dessert. And so it's like, okay. look, I know this stuff isn't fun, but the most important thing is we are all in this together as a camp. And we're saying like, you have to do this with me because if you watch me do it, this is stuff that you will assume you can do. So we came up with a new thing and I, uh, we're going to put it out there publicly on the podcast. I'm sure at some point I'll mention it on YouTube or Instagram. The new thing is the panel of Steve's. What does that mean? Whatever you do, <laughs> whatever you do, are you comfortable doing it in front of a panel of Steve Smith, Steve Jordan, and Steve Gad? Ooh, that'd be a big flying no. <laughs> Anything. What do you feel like if somebody said play quarter notes on the snare at 80 BPM, I'd be like, I'd rather not. So uh, that's I'll how left handed on, on, on a <laughs> on a gigantic double bass kit. I'll do that. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd rather do that than do something that's important to me. <laughs> be like, oh, God. So if you if you feel like you could do this in front of the panel of Steve's, then you are ready to move on. If not, let's let's give it a little bit more work. It makes my heart palpitate just thinking about it. <laughs> Oof. So that <laughs> my God. sort of transitions to a question I was going to ask you about this. The yeah. the live streaming aspect of it. I mean, mm -hmm. you do, you've done camps for years and you've had people in the room, yeah. certain dynamic, and you've done live streaming, one way streaming for years as well. Shorter mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. Is it, was there any anxiety or, or hesitation about how to do it this way? Um, yeah. I know for me, I can pre-record videos, but if you ask me to stream it, I don't know why it just makes me freak out. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that there's the streaming thing just because I've been doing it long enough now. And I also do it in even more scary situations like like Modern Drummer could say, hey, Mike, we're just going to give you the account for the day. And then it's like, OK, now I'm not streaming to my fan base. I'm streaming to all the critics. Right. You know, the old school Modern Drummer fans that are just like, he didn't work out a Mervy Spivex book. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, here we go. Here they come. Old so, wounds, Mike. Old yeah. wounds. <laughs> Still going. <laughs> hey, watch Michael Jordan. Those old wounds fuel you. Uh, so anyways, so I've done it. You know, when I do it on Minel's channel, I'm like, oh, man, I'm doing a hand speed mm, lesson true. on Minel's channel. And Minel markets to the fastest drummers in the world. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, no, there's no nerves as far as doing the actual live stream, but the nerves are, will people get the value out of this? Because the real value of camp is the panel of Steve's. I mean, the panel of Steve's is my stage. Like, oh, you have it down over there on that practice pad? Well, come on up. Yeah. Now you can do it in front of us. Right, right. And then they all, I, now it's not a trick. I mean, God, half the time or more than half the time, they nail it and we all get to applaud and be like, oh my God, you did it. Mm. But it's that reality check, that accountability. How do I create accountability in a live stream where it's like you're at home we're not on zoom i can't see you i 
can tell you the trick to that is that it's not open to as many people as possible. The fact that we have a Zoom call before this thing starts, we all get to know each other and we know it is 10 people, only 10 people. I think everyone's holding themselves accountable. I think also, and this may be controversial, but I think the money is very important. When you pay Mm -hmm. our, this camp was $300. When you pay $300, are you really going to walk away from your computer and like go fix some pop tarts? No (laughs) way. You're going to get your value out of this. Well, it depends on how much you have stored up in your account. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it is relative. Cool. This is cute. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He'd be like, he's not even using Microsoft. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that the the money, the small group, all of that kind of builds in this accountability. So I was nervous on the first camp. Will you guys actually even will you be honest with yourself? That's mm-hmm. where that's where the, the panel of Steve's came from. It's like I need you to have a mental picture of something that freaks you out so that you will truly take this seriously. When we go through subdivisions and you look at the page, and here's what happens. I email the campers the the camp book, the PDF of it, the day before the camp because I need them to be able to print it out. I know full well that all of them are going to look at it and be like, Psh, I just wasted my money. I can play all this stuff mm-hmm. until you have to play it properly, right. until you have to play it with creativity mm-hmm. and feel and touch and care about it, until the three Steves are watching you do it. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, I actually don't know my subdivisions. And my thought is, I know. I know you don't know your subdivisions. I've taught over 100 drum camps. No yeah. one knows their subdivisions, <laughs> even though they think they do. And and maybe even somebody like you or me that went through school music, and of course we know that stuff. It's like, okay, but really, when was the last time you went quarters through 30-second notes, including quintuplets and septuplets, and then back down at different tempos? And it's like, oh, man, I you know I do know them, but I, I guess I haven't practiced them in a while. It's like, all right, well, let's clean it up. You think being better, you got me fired up now, but <laughs> you think being better at your subdivisions is going to make you a worse drummer? No way. And that's what I tried to make the whole curriculum about is I can't, because you're not here in person, I can't predetermine what your style is or what you're going for in your career. So I'm going to make this camp book only about the fundamentals that permeate into every genre of drumming. Yeah. So the camp, it's like, I don't care if you want to be a bebop drummer or a metal drummer. I can't get you out of this. You need to have this thing down, whatever this is. So whew, I'm going to take the, a breath. That's the secret sauce. I think I've probably said it a thousand times over the years, but when I was young and, and really eager to be, you know, get this stuff all kind of learned quickly, I thought there was just some magic thing that the Vinnies of the world have. Like, once mm-hmm. I know the magic thing that they have, then I'll be able to understand right. it. Well, the magic thing they have is just impeccable fundamentals. <laughs> like, to the point Man. where literally Vinny cannot mess up because he can play anything and it's going to be perfectly placed and it's going to be perfectly dynamics and perfect phrasing. Yeah. But he's not reinventing the language. He's just playing with impeccable That's, fundamentals. Yeah. And once you have those fundamentals down, I can promise all of you out there, you will hear them in your favorite players so much more clearly. And you'll, you'll realize, oh my gosh, I could totally do that. They just rearrange the fundamentals in a way that I haven't done yet. But it's still made out of the same ingredients. And I think that what you're talking about is what I went through as well, which is, okay, I've done future sounds. I've done advanced funk studies. I did beyond, I did bop or, you know, um, Art of bop what's drumming. the first one? Yeah. Art of bop yeah. drumming. Then I did beyond bop. And so it's like, well, where's the next harder book? And yeah. then I go to Kim Plainfield's book. What's harder after and that? Like, Marco Miniman. What's harder? And then I it's like, good. <laughs> like, when am I going to sound yeah, good? Yeah. <laughs> and all of it's making me sound worse, you know? And then at some point, we lucked out and Steve Jordan joined John Mayer's trio and we were like, okay, so we're allowed to just play a groove. And he was like, yes, you can just play a groove and make, and you'll be happy and everything will work. And it's like, okay. But now I just realized I can't do that because I've worked on all that complicated stuff. And like, ah, so we all go through it. We are all head cases as drummers. It never ends, man. You know, sometimes uh, ignorance is bliss. Just have fun. Just play songs. Drop a couple 16th notes here and there. It's all good. Boom. <laughs> Let's talk about songs. Let's get into our album section. Okay, so we are replacing our educational segment today with just a fun little mind game. Mike and I are going to go either back in time a little bit or back in time a lot to two albums that we wish we were present for the recording of. Uh, This stems from a thing where I was lucky enough to be invited to go to the tracking uh, for the Tarzan soundtrack with my hero, Phil Collins. At the time, I was uh, on a label called Hollywood Records. The A&R for that label uh, was... 
producing the Tarzan soundtrack.、Mm-hmm. And he had dropped by the studio where my band and I were recording. And he just said,、oh, I, I'm sorry, I can't be here today. I got to bounce for this Disney thing. And The Lion King had already come out, which was Elton John. So we knew whoever was doing the next Disney animated movie was going to be Sting, Peter Gabriel, somebody massive of that order.、Mm-hmm. And I just said, dude, just tell me who's doing it. And, and <laughs> keep in mind, at this point in time, as I'm asking this question, my hat is over my eyes. I have hooped earrings, a lip piercing, <laughs> a white tank top, and black dickies, and some Adidas shell toes. So I'm, so I'm saying, tell me who's、oh, doing the, the new Disney movie.、Toes. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Dude, I, I took straight edge to the, to the 10th degree, man.、Oh. So I'm in LA. <laughs> I'm asking the producer, who, as we're working on our hardcore record, just tell me who's doing the new D- Disney movie. I love that stuff. And he's like, you would hate it. It's Phil Collins. And I'm like, oh my God, that's my hero. You don't understand. If I could have a giant chest piece, it would be a, a picture of the face value cover. It would be <laughs> Phil Collins' face on my chest. I love Phil.、Uh, so, anyways. Long story short,、uh, I, I said, Oh man, that's so cool. Just tell me how it goes. And he was like, You can just come if you want. He's actually recording the theme song, like the main,、um, I think it's You'll Be in My Heart.、Um, so he's recording the main song today. And I said, Okay. Wow. And、uh, wow. so he let me go. It was at Conway, I believe, Conway Recording Studios in、uh, Hollywood. And we were recording at Ocean Way. So I didn't tell my band because. You know, I wanted them to think, like, oh man, I can't wait for the new Mushroom Head album to come out. And when Slipknot's new record <laughs> drops, it's going to be amazing. But I'm going to go see Phil Collins do the new Disney movie. So I,、uh, <laughs> amazing. I show up at the studio and you have to do like the little talk box, like, hi, I'm here for the Tarzan recording. And they're like, who are you? And you have to say, I'm nobody. And <laughs> then, like, it's like, oh,、here. yeah, they're going to kick me out because they have to open that like ivy gate for you. So I go in there, and、uh, who's the percussionist that was playing with Phil at the time?、Um, Lenny Castro? Luis Conte?、Um, Louis, yeah, Luis. So Luis Conte was there, and, there, and he's just kind of hanging out. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Luis Conte. And he was the only one there, and then there was a kid on a drum machine, and that was it. And there's no band.、Hmm. And so I'm just hanging out. I introduce myself to Luis, just let him know I'm, I'm a drummer. I'm a huge fan of Phil. And Rob Cavallo, the guy that's producing this, is my AR at Hollywood Records. He said I could be here. So that was that. Phil shows up, and you're like, oh my God, there's your hero. There's your, your God, technically. Yeah, you know,、yeah. like this is above <laughs> Vinny and Dave. This is Phil Collins for me. Walks in, shakes everybody's hand, couldn't be nicer. Now in the control room, there's this loop going、uh, from the drum machine kid. And it's just like, boom, to cack it, to don't. And that's just going through the house speakers. And then Phil shakes the producer's hand, and the producer's like, You good? And Phil's like, Yeah, I'm good. Phil walks into the、uh, live room, gets on some keys, and just plays some keys, doing his thing. They're tracking this whole thing. It's just looping and looping. He's tracking it. Then he changes the preset, hits some horns, changes the preset, hits a lead guitar, does all this, <laughs> walks over to the drum set. Flatoon, shakakadoon, boom. They're just looping it, looping it. And he、What? just nails the drum part, walks into the vocal booth, hits that, <laughs> comes back in, shakes everybody's hand, bounces. It was like the, dr- I was like, my, oh my gosh, my idol is truly everything I hoped he would be. He was kind, he was courteous, he never did more than one take. And it was like, it was probably 45 minutes to an hour. It was incredible, okay, man. Okay, so that had to have been. Pre written, he was just coming in to lay down、yes. the final version. Okay, okay, yes. Shoot,、um, he had me there. I was like, Is he just improvised that whole <laughs> soundtrack in like 45 no, minutes? No, it was, it was, it was really cool. And but that's one of those things where when I and the reason we we're bringing this up, what two albums would Mike and I like to be present for? There's no way I could have envisioned that process by hearing the final track,、mm-hmm. and so we know by hearing these stories. Oh, wow. The way I heard it and imagined in my mind is so different. So, all that being said, let's dive into this. If you could be present for one album, let's take your first one. Now, we can both admit, by the way, there's a billion albums. We'd love to be there for Zeppelin and the Beatles and the Who. Yeah, and, for sure. You know,、yeah. and Tool and、uh, all that stuff. So, what's your first pick, sir? The first one I'm going kind of, you know, not con- contemporary in the sense that it was in my. Lifetime as a drummer, and this, and I still think this record resonates with a lot of people. So that's Fiona Apple's、um, When the Pawn, dot, 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 whatever the rest of the title is. 
So this record features Matt Chamberlain and it's produced by uh, John Bryan. So this record established the template of what I think music should sound like for mm-hmm. me. Like everything yeah. about it, there's so much drums and so many cool sounds and layers. So to see how the heck they did that it would be, I'm just not sure which one's the genius or who, you know, like which came first. Was it because I know the way what I've read, Fiona came in, played piano and sang the songs, left, and then Matt and John just got to work and made the record. Really? Okay. So who was it that had the first idea to take it somewhere weird rather than somewhere obvious? Right. And, and is she agreeing with this? Is she fighting yeah, is she, it? Is she hearing stuff or is it the day's over and we finished your song? Here it is. And then did he have to right. redo anything or like just the whole process is, it's pretty magical. I wanted, I want to know which one of those three, or was it all three? They just, it was just a magic time period where the music yeah, just yeah, came yeah. together. So that record, because I'm always trying, I'm always chasing that. How can I make my drum track sound as improvised yet highly produced, yet unusual, yet comfortable like that whole thing is just crazy yeah i mean and and this album is the beginning of matt chamberlain for me before the stuff that i eventually fell in love with so this to me i just thought i didn't know who it was at the time because i wasn't that into drumming and i was like okay whoever this is this is my new favorite drummer and then that led me to critters bugging and mm. to the ed burkell stuff ed burkell stuff and then eventually into um Tori Amos and all all the things that Matt eventually mm-hmm. did, but this was the one where I think what you said was perfect. Like when we show you guys this audio example of On the Bound, there's this little thing happening. And it's like, oh, cool. So I guess it's a uh, sampled, and then these real drums come in, and it's just unmistakably Matt, and it's it's yep. incredible. Yep, and the piano, it's everything about it is is so so badass. So yeah, let's drop in the first bit of On the Bound. I mean, that, that's that it, it for me. That was it. Everything about yeah. it, the sounds, the, it's just a vibe. I, could, I think that's, and that's a the thing is, record forever. I kind of need to see Matt play that because I remember taking, this is the time where we take our CDs and our, our Sony Walkman into our drum room and try to make this stuff happen. Mm-hmm. But it's like, are there hi-hats? No, there's hi-hats. Def- wait, is that a shaker? Like Matt was Tom, the one yeah. that, <laughs> yeah, Matt, was, it totally like, wait, does he have a bass? Uh, and this is definitely one of those ones. I mean, it's such a great call because I wish I could have just been there to see what was going on. And I think I want to know more about Matt's process. Is it Matt's process or is it a producer's process? Yeah. Where Does the producer say, hey, do you have something ringier? Or does Matt say, you know what I'm thinking here? Yeah. And and it's almost it's funny. It's like you and I both have an, you know enough contact with Matt that we could ask. But it's like, I don't want to know. I want to know, but I don't want to know. I wanted to to take on a slight tangent. He put up a video last year of him demonstrating the one headlight beat from the Wallflowers. Really? Okay. So he like reproduced it, like used, I think he even used the same drum, at least whatever he had. And everybody plays that groove with a shuffle right hand, like some sort of a ace 16s. He played straight eights on that freaking track. All of the swing is coming from the shaker that's layered in. See that's that's and he the left damn that up for like a day and then took it down. That's the chamberness. The chamberness <laughs> is that he's always. I can't tell what's a shaker and what's a hi hat because he plays his hi hats so delicate. Yeah, I, I still think the greatest insight I've ever gotten to Matt Chamberlain Chamberlain is that Apogee video because yeah. he wasn't in control of it. So you, it wasn't like he got to decide what you're going to see. It's like you really got to see him play a groove, and I was like, whoa, he's way tip of the stick, top of the hat kind of guy. Yeah. I thought he'd be all side of the stick and as much texture and chunk as possible. But now I know why his hi-hats are so delicate Yeah, and his control, his dynamics over the kit and knowing how that kit, very similar to Ash Stone, knowing how that kit translates to a microphone is a whole different level of drumming yeah. that session players have over just people that play drums and they're using their ears as the guiding force, you yeah, know, for sure. Yeah. That's my pick. So what's your, what's your first one? All right. My first one, I'm going to go with a band that hopefully you guys, 
haven't heard of, and the only reason I say that is because then I can bring them to your attention. The band is called Jellyfish. Uh, unfortunately, only two albums, as far as I know. The drummer is the lead singer, stands at the front of the stage on a stand-up kit, and it has always been debated. Uh, it's like there's no way he played this stuff. Like the drumming yeah. is so freaking amazing, <laughs> but not Vinny level stuff. It's like, wait, and did he really do it standing up or was he sitting down when he did it? And the fact that he could sing this stuff and play at the same time is incredible. But for me, <laughs> um, I'm going to show you. I think this album is dead on between a Queen record and then maybe Beach Boys Pet Sounds. Okay. So I'm going to show you two tracks that really demonstrate that, demonstrate that. So the first one that we have up, we're going to start about the 40-second mark. Uh, this is called Joining a Fan Club by Jellyfish. So let's assume that he did play drums on this. Okay. But let's play a game. Who would have been the drummer that would have played that? If you had to mm. pick a session drummer of any time in history, who would have been the one God. that you call for a big anthemic rock drum track that's oh, intricate God. but still has to sound like a guy that's in a band? I've got, yeah, I've got that's a, so Greg Tissonette is the guy that pops up for me. Oh, that might be the perfect one, especially knowing what he has been able to do with all the Beatles stuff or all the Ringo stuff. Yeah, I think that's perfect because there's like this there's this control of of a session player, but the recklessness of a Tommy Lee or an 80s rock drummer. Right. Um, But it's an 80s rock drummer that is five years older than the 80s. Like he's not in his 20s. He's he's in the 80s at 35. So he lived through the Mm. 70s. Oh, you wow. know, so that might even Dean Castronova or oh. uh, Mickey Curry. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And somebody that's just like yelling at the producer, just just let me leave the bottom heads off. Just let me leave the bottom heads off. And the guy's like, no, nah, man, we need more gaff. We don't need gaff tape. Just let me leave the bottom heads off. Um, but that drum set, what I wanted to be there for is not that I just wanted you guys to hear that because I think it's. A lot of people miss out on this album. And in the producer world, this is one of the most famous albums of all time. This is the production on this album is just insane, especially for 1993. Um, But I want you guys to hear how big it can sound. And then I want you to hear this second track. And this is the stuff that I wish I was a part of. This is a song called, I don't even know the full name, but Sabrina. uh, Let's see here. Sabrina Paste and Plato um, or Plato. Plato. Okay. (laughs) Plato, Plato. <laughs> you had, you just had, just let it go, bro. Couldn't. You know I'm taking it out. I can't leave that in there. I was just reading as fast as I could. Just let it happen. What part of just the song? Just let it happen once. Listen? You're like Amber. <laughs> what part of the song? Just like, Plato, Socrates. I try to keep Cesar a Socrates and Plato. Really did. God. Um, Johannes Kepler. What part of the song are we listening to? All right, jump in. 15 seconds, you dingbat. This is Sabrina, Pasty, and Plato. I'm going to be honest with you. Mm. This could be on the air. I don't like the Queen stuff, like tons of harmonies and very kind of operatic rock and roll. Mm. For some reason, this has an aesthetic that I really like. I can't explain it why, but I just don't like Queen, but I like this. Yeah, you know, it's I'm with you. And I, I was not a Queen fan, but there's something about this that... Like I said, to me, this reminds me more of Beach Boys. Okay. And there's like a care to it um, instead of like how 
how difficult can we make this? There's like, well, these harmonies are here because they have to be here. Mm -hmm. And they're just slightly beautiful. And there's something quirky about this. And it's funny. There is a lot in this one song that reminds me of the Fiona Apple of Fiona Apple's stuff. Mm -hmm. She has so many uh, little percussive things that you would find. It's almost like the per or the musical stuff, uh, musical gear, the percussive gear that you would find at a circus. I feel like that's yeah. what they use on these albums. Yeah, it's like you know, all it's kinds cute. of like it's like music a kid. boxes and weird stuff, toys. Yeah, like, hey, we're going to track an album. Go to Toys R Us. Yeah. And, and instead of using a marimba, find a toy little xylophone. Yeah, and instead of using much. real shakers, find plastic with plastic beads in it. And so there's just something about this, especially this one song, that, God, I wish I could have been in the room. And once again, I want to know... Who is the genius behind it? Is it the singer? Is it the producer? Mm. Uh, was the genius of this album built out of tension or built out of cooperation? You know, when I, I remember, I don't know if you ever got a chance to see the videos, videotapes, maybe even DVDs that Korn and Pantera put out back in like the 90s. Mm -mm. But it was like, no. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> Korn's first album uh, that had Blind on it had Ross Robinson producing it and they put out a video of like the whole production of the, of the album and then the touring schedule, but the amount of fighting, like physical fighting in the studio between Ross Robinson and the singer and they're throwing things at each other. And it's like, okay, no, it's a whole probably. different level. I don't, I don't want to be a part of that, but I do wonder was this genius end product built out of tension or out of cooperation. And with this, I'm kind of like, Oh God, we know there wasn't an album after this, mm -hmm. so this is amazing. But did this destroy your band? It is a it's a fascinating story. There is um, I just remembered as you were talking. There's the um, YouTube channel produced like a pro by yeah. Warren Hewitt. He did two in depth uh, conversations about uh, the two um, Jellyfish records with uh, yeah. Roger Joseph Manning Jr., who was the co-songwriter guitarist keyboardist on all that stuff so i remember watching those and it was fascinating for because they would listen to tracks and he would explain how they did certain things and wow who, who okay the I'm in. so there you go there's three hours of of discussion <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking at it right now there's now, one now comes milk. the truth like well do you want to really know like well i'm not i don't want to know that bad i just kind of want to know uh hell i can't even pronounce their song names all right moving on to your second pick what do you got all right, this one was more just for the curiosity of, of, of witnessing innovation that happens in the studio and, and seeing how everyone responds to it. So I wanted to pick a Coltrane record, but I didn't want to pick a Love Supreme because it's my all-time favorite record and it'd be too obvious. So um, as I've been running, I found a box set of Coltrane stuff, which we'll talk a little bit more later, but the album Giant Steps was his first solo album with Atlantic Records. And it revolutionized jazz theory, jazz harmony with one record. And when you listen to this record, his band was not prepared. Like they didn't know what the hell was going on with these chord changes. And they oh, bought my mic and they still recorded it and they still released it. So you're hearing Coltrane just rip. I mean, he's just telling the world, hey, we've got a whole new paradigm here with with jazz. And Tommy Flanagan's like, uh, what is the, are these chords? And then, I don't know who's on bass, um, but you hear, uh, let me get the personnel up here. Tommy Flanagan's on piano, I believe. I'm not even sure he's on bass. It doesn't matter. He's struggling. <laughs> then, <laughs> but you've got Art Taylor just swinging his butt off. He might have the easiest job. He's like, I just got to play fast and simple and let Coltrane do his thing. But poor Tommy Flanagan, he's like, whoa, these changes no one's ever done before. And you want me to solo right. over it and we're going to record it today and you're going to put it out on Atlantic Records. So oh. I just want to, want, want to be there to kind of experience how did everyone respond when Coltrane first dropped giant steps in front of them? I mean, it was, it was recorded in January of 59, I believe, and Man. released – you know, shortly thereafter. So anyway, that's my pick. That record, it, when you really start listening to what's happening, you can hear they're dropping the form. Everyone's kind of screwing up. They're, when they're trading fours, like they become four and a half. I'm like, what the hell is going on? 
So giant steps just to experience the absolute paradigm shift in jazz harmony. Now, what do you think was happening at that time? You said that was when? 59? 59. Okay, so what do you think was happening at that time? I mean, clearly Coltrane's not trying to make a pop album. So no. is this a flex? Is this like, okay, let's... The only reason to make music is to push the boundaries of music? I mean, what... There's got to be an A&R at Atlantic that's like, oh, God, oh, God, could you just play my favorite things one more time, please? <laughs> this is before I that. Okay, so, so this I mean... Was, he had just, just left um, Miles' band, had spent some time with, with Thelonious Monk, so... Okay, I think hanging out with Monk, he learned sense. all this new these new ways to approach music, and, and he just had mm. so much to say. This is him just exploding with ideas, but still restricted to a bebop format. So it it wasn't what it became, which was free. This was right. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna explore the 16 bar form as far as it can possibly go before it just explodes, and then it has to go somewhere else. So he was wow. still playing bebop, but. These chord progressions were no one's ever heard before, and he was just playing so many notes. <laughs> like, how do you? Wow. you know? Do you want to? Do you want to put in some audio? Yeah, we'll do just a bit of giant steps. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I, I was telling you before this thing started, obviously I'm familiar with all of our jazz greats, but I haven't taken a deep dive into Coltrane out of the fear of like, I don't want to, I don't want to graze over it. I, mm -hmm. I've already done that. I've grazed over Coltrane, just like we we're talking about how it's, it's similar to Tabla. I know it exists. I know it's amazing, but, yeah. but I don't want to get into it until I'm going to get into it. Well, um, I mean, it's crazy because you can go from 1960, which is when that album came out, to his last record on Atlantic, which was in 66. So in six years, he went from that, which is bebop, to what you know, which is the My Favorite Things kind of vampy modal yeah. stuff, to by the end of it, he was playing free, all in six years. Like, wow. What have you done in six years? <laughs> Not that. I can, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> Not that. All right, what let's get into in my second pick. <laughs> right, Not that. <laughs> Uh, I think this is, I hope this is on every drummer's list, but there's some very specific reasons why I'd like to be there for this. So uh, this is Sting's al album, Ten Summoner's Tales. Now, uh, initially I was going to go uh, Soul Cages or something like that, but the thing is there are some things inside of this album that I don't, I want to know, just like you said with the Fiona stuff and Matt Chamberlain, I need to know where the concept came from and not even, I don't even trust the people that tell me where it came from, even if it's them telling me because mm -hmm. I've heard it in Vinnie clinics and stuff. And sting said to do this, but I kind of sting said to do this. It kind of feels like you're telling a Michael Jordan story. <laughs> when you tell a Michael Jordan story, do not piss off Michael Jordan. Cause you'll never get called again. Uh. So you're always going to protect sting in a sting story. So unless you're accidentally getting recorded, you know, and so I want to I want to know, like, how did this stuff happen? And what I'm talking about is what I've always referred to as the implied quarter note pulse. I want to know it shows up on at least three songs that I can think of. Uh, the two songs that are in seven, eight, mm. uh, he's doing it on the bell of the ride. And then in seven days in five, eight, he's doing it. He's doing this quarter note pulse on this on the hi-hats mm -hmm. while playing in five eight with his uh kick and snare so let's give seven days a listen i hope all of you have heard this but if you haven't mike and i are about to introduce you to your new favorite album <laughs> Is all she wrote, a kind of ultimate note. 
So that's another one of those like perfect meetings of the minds. Like I really wonder, I'm sure Sting has talked about it at some point, but was there someone else in the band before these ideas came about? Or was he workshopping the songs that were going to become this record with Manu or with Omar? And then yeah, when did he meet Vinny? How did Vinny become the guy? And he is the only drummer I could think of that could do this record the right way. I totally agree. And and why are there so many odd time songs on this album? I mean, Sting is a he's coming out of the police. He's not trying to be some new fusion guy. He wants to make sure that his bandmates know, dude, I have bigger hits by myself than I did with you guys. You know, I mean, we cannot (laughs) pretend that this man does not have an ego. Um, I don't know if he's kind or mean, but I know he has an ego and there's nothing wrong with that at all. I love that. I mean, it's one of the reasons I look up to him is he's going to, he's going for the jugular, but it's almost like, can I have a song on the radio in five? Can I have a song on the radio in seven? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, things like that where it's just like, Dude, and you're right. I mean, Vinny is perfect to do it, but I I need to know that quarter note pulse is the secret sauce to being able to make odd time accessible. Mm. And I think it's just so genius. And it 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 didn't just happen on seven days. It happened on uh, the other two tracks, Saint Augustine and Hell, and uh, what's the other one with the country vibe? Um, I can't remember, but yeah, yeah, but. Yeah, um, Love is strong, stranger than something. Stronger than stronger justice. Than, yeah. <laughs> so, as all of our listeners are yelling at their <laughs> their radio right that. now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Love is stronger than justice. It's You're so stupid. You're so stupid. <laughs> but and that one, you know, goes from um, ding, can, chicka, ding, 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 cotton, ding, cotton, ding, cotton, ding, cotton, ding, ding. Mm-hmm. That I mean, there's so many feel changes in that, and yet somehow it's a pop tune. So I really wish I was present for this. The one thing I will say is almost all the tracks on 10 Summoner's Tales, at least quite a few of them, there, I still don't know if it's an actual recording because it sounds like it's the album version, but it's almost like they're doing a playthrough of it in a studio. Oh yeah. I had that on VHS. That was, that was something I rented from the local video store. No way. It was like the Holy grail. I dubbed it immediately. Right. Cause it's not, it's <laughs> not a, it's not a Vinny thing, but for us, it is a Vinny thing. We get to was. see him do these. There, there was no yeah. Vinny. There was the unplugged thing that he played with Sting on the, on the right. blue Yamaha kit. Was that was mad first, about you. Yeah. Yep. I first heard the offbeat hi-hat thing that he does yep. all the time. There was a, concert video of when Vinny first joined for Soul Cage's tour. There's a concert video of okay. that, which is amazing. That I think he's playing the blonde Maple Customs on that on that video. Yeah, buddy. But this was like I think they they just were playing through the record because it's not the album versions. There are definitely some variations. Yeah, you can hear like Sting like kind of count the band in and make some like <clears throat> you know. Yeah, it's uh, or you can different. hear Vinny you can hear Vinny count the band in and I mean, even that, like, uh, I still have Mad About You pulled up, but even that, he counts the band in one, two, three, four, five, two, two, three. And he stops right there. <laughs> oh, I had no idea. How do you count a band in in five, eight? One, two, three, four, five, two, two, three. And then you just start like, okay, I guess that's how I'm counting a band in now. Two bars of odd time, but I stop at the halfway point of the second bar. Like, I mean, I was a kid watching this stuff, you know? So anyways... Uh, that was okay. really something I'd like to be a part of. And then the second track, uh, Mike and I were discussing this before the podcast actually started. But the second track, If I Ever Lose My Faith in You, this was definitely a huge hit for Sting. Big pop song. This is where I was starting to get into the world of recording. My band was starting to get our deal and stuff. I knew a little bit and I knew enough to know that there were these things called samples. And I had a really hard time believing that anyone could get this snare sound by mm-hmm. itself without layering samples on thing is at that time samples were so generic it was usually very obvious if somebody used a snare sample because it was meant to sound electronic or oh cool you use stadium snare i know Mm -hmm. that one this one was like damn it i i've heard he sounds like this every time he plays so let's just give this a listen real quick and then we'll talk about the snare sound this is if i ever lose my faith in you I'm remembering all the all because Vinny had 
he was such a mysterious drummer because he didn't do videos. He didn't do clinics. By this time, he was kind of removed himself from right. all of that stuff. So there, I think he might have played this song on Saturday Night Live. I'm picturing the old Saturday Night Live set where they had like the big f- fans rotating on the side. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I yeah. totally remember that. They, yeah. I think they played this song and, and yeah, I was just mesmerized with his right hand because it was like it was moving in slow motion, but he's playing all these shuffle notes. But yeah, that snare yeah. sound, I, what I think they did, maybe someone will know, they sampled Vinny's snare and then layered it on top of his own track. That sounds about right. I mean, it's it's definitely what, to me, became the snare sound for me. And it's what I still hear in my head, you know, when I'm... It's funny, I record myself with two microphones in a room with padding, and I still wish that somehow it would sound like Vinny, you know? Um, just that, <laughs> while telling myself, stop hitting the snare so hard, like, you don't need to do that. And it, so, but it's always there, that that song, this album, the, the tones on it, I mean, to me... If you said, if you could have your cross stick sound like any cross stick, what would it be? It would be from Seven Days. Mm-hmm. That's the cross stick of life. And so this was one of those albums where I just wish I was there, fly on the wall, and could view where did the fights happen. You know there has to be fights. I mean, we've got a lot of personalities in the room. Where did the fights happen? Where did the magic come from? Was the producer just along for the ride? Was Sting in charge of the show? So hope that guy uh, gives you guys something fun to think about. What albums would you wish that you were there for and you were present for? It also showed how modern both Mike and I are So since uh, <laughs> our <laughs> our most current album was from like 96. No, I never want to be uh, that guy, but yeah. You know, it's. I think it's just that right now albums aren't quite as mysterious to me as they once were. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at a time where I was truly confused. I didn't know what was going on. And I was trying to go back in time with my current knowledge and think, what do I still have no clue about? And definitely the stuff that was going on in this album is one of those things where it's like, I need to know who is in charge of some of these decisions. Because I don't think that the end product... It, the talent is always incredible, and I respect it for sure, but the choices are what matter to me. I want to know who made the choices because I think that that's what separates us, mm. separates all of us. If we all have the exact same skill set and we're all working from the same batch of material, then whatever choices we made with those skills and with that batch of material, that's what separates us, and that's what I look to and get inspired by the most. Once again, we need to thank Dream Symbols for sponsoring the episode. And what we're going to do right now is drop in some audio I snagged from the Dream Symbols Facebook page. They posted a video that was created by one of their artists, Mario Tellero. And in this video, Mario is playing some 15-inch Bliss hats, a 22-inch Bliss series ride, a 20-inch vintage Bliss crash ride. Check out these tones and make sure you go follow Dream's Facebook page and check out the video of Mario playing this. It's really cool, and let's check it out. It's time for some audio listener questions. We're going to start with Jan. Hey, Mike and Mike. This is Jan from Sausalito. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're all doing well out there. My question is about vertical time, and it's only become a question for me recently since I've started recording a lot when I practice, almost every time, actually, when I practice, which is four days a week about. I have a DAW sitting there in front of me, and I turn it on and press record. With that and my time scale and bars and beats in Adobe Audition, I can look at how on or off my tracks are. And I'm not happy at all. Uh, well, strike that. There are times when I'm really happy, but mostly not happy. I would love to hear your ideas, methods, tools, thought processes in practicing vertical time so you can really get on top of it. Uh, as a little bit of a sidebar, I was lucky enough to hear a raw track of Kenny Aronoff, and it had the click track with it, and it was just remarkable. I, You know, the guy's a legend, and there's a reason for it. But I would just love to approach that. So I'm depending on you. Just kidding. I'll put the time in. Anyway, thank you very much for your time. 
We all appreciate everything you guys do. And some of us might even love you a little bit. Or a lot. Not sure. Anyway, thanks. Take care. All right. So Jan has been to camp. He's also taken a few private lessons with me. He's just an amazing, amazing person. And honestly, a monster drummer. So I want you guys to understand when he's talking about not being happy with his drumming, this is already somebody that's approaching that professional level. And what happens is the better you get at the instrument, the more you can scrutinize how off you actually are. Mm -hmm. So this is not somebody that's just starting out and trying to like keep in time. 90% of all drummers, if they watch Jan play, they would say his timing is flawless, but he's now getting to that level where he can hear and now visually see through his DAW that it's not flawless and he wants it to be there. So Mm -hmm. what are your, as somebody that's gone as deep as you can into improving time, what are your first suggestions? The greatest improvement I've personally felt and seen in other people is to use a metronome that only clicks on the offbeats. So you are responsible for the downbeats. The click is just popping up on the offbeats to remind, to give you a, a hint whether you're speeding up or slowing down. That hands down has been the single biggest improvement in my own sense of internal pulse. Um, more than using a gap click, more than anything else, if that... Because you have to be the one that, that nails the, the pulse and then the click mm-hmm. on the off just – because if you get off and it flips, you're screwed. You can't really bring it back. So that's been huge, right. which involves a lot of internal subdividing. So count out loud, internal subdivisions, um, sing your parts as you're playing them, use a metronome on the offbeat. That will do a lot for you. Yeah. I agree. I I think that uh, Will Kennedy was the one that pointed out to me how much my playing was taking over my own pulse. And so what happened, we were working on uh, Yellow Jackets tune Freedom Land. And I mean, to me, it was it was in time. It was fine. And he was like, oh, man, your time's all over the place. I'm like, all over the place. That might be a little much. I might be dragging and pushing. And he was like, well, I'm not even really worried about listening to you. He's like, look at your body. Every time you hit a crash, your body moves with it every time. But he's like, but when you're grooving, you have this quarter note pulse somewhere in your upper body. And then as soon as you improvise anything, that improvisation actually is what's jerking your body around and your that pulse stops. He's like, if you could have that pulse through the whole thing you play, mm. then you would have that feel through the whole thing you play. And I was like, well, I don't, what am I supposed to do? Just move my head in quarter notes? He's like, no, start counting out loud, yeah. count quarter notes. You can, you can make a sound, you can count, it doesn't matter. But if you can't count quarter notes through whatever you just played, most likely it wasn't in time, right. you know, because um, it's being pulled. You don't have an overriding pulse that's, that's holding it together. And if you're stealing the time from the metronome all the time, I don't really feel that that's quite it either. And that's why I think what you said is perfect. If you could count out loud and have the click on the upbeats, or the offbeats, and you're in business. Yep. Good luck. <laughs> Welcome to the <laughs> You got this, Jan. <laughs> All right. Good luck. Next one's from Peter. Hey, Mike and Mike. It's Peter from Columbia, Missouri. I've got a question about recording from home, which I think is something that a lot of us are maybe doing, uh, at least in earnest, for the first time these days. So I'm on two projects, recording projects right now. Um, One is a little bit more serious and like I'm sending tracks to a uh, producer, engineer who's, you know, putting things together, uh, tracks that record in my home studio. Another one is kind of a, you know, more of a lo-fi band camp kind of thing where I'm sending um, tracks just to uh, the artist himself who's who's mixing it at his, uh, you know, on his own computer. In both scenarios, I'm having a kind of similar problem where I will record something and listen back to my take and just not really be sure what to what to think about. I'm having trouble settling um, on, a, on drum parts and also on drum sounds. Typically in a studio environment, you know, there's a lot of just conversation with other musicians or with the person who's recording you um, about what's going to sound good. Um, in terms of a part or like, you know, for instance, like a snare tuning, you know, I'm gonna, there's a track right now where I'd love to use this old fifties WFL drum and like crank it down low and, and have it be a big, weird, smacky, trashy noise. Um, I think it sounds great in the track, but I also, you know, having trouble settling on that without feedback from other musicians. So just wondering on how either of you goes about listening to your own work, especially, 
um, you know, if it's just a, like a drum part that you're recording uh, and sending off to get finalized later. Another good question for me that comes down to a couple things. Um, inevitably, I do a really fast, rough take of something with the sounds that I'm hearing for that track. So if I don't get any kind of reference, if, if the songwriter or producer doesn't send me like a link to this is the vibe, I'll just go with my instincts, pick a, you know, usually that means I'll probably narrow it down to the basic snare family, high, low, ringy, bright, dark, dead, like just kind of zero in on the vibe, find a drum that I think fits that, shoot all, you know, do a quick rough take and, and let them know, hey, here's the first minute, here's the chorus, here's the verse, this is what I'm hearing. So you just got to schedule, like make sure they're they're available at that time so you don't mm-hmm. wait like five days to finish the song. That usually helps. Um, but ultimately, I think it comes down to experience and you just kind of start to just know you got to trust your guts. Um, and same thing with parts. Like sometimes I'll do three different, totally different takes. Like this is one way, this is this way, this is that way. Kind right. of zero me in. But it is tough to collaborate. So I think you have to kind of upfront do as much of that with them available and then you're off on your own to finish the track. That's what I do. Yeah, and don't be fa- don't be scared to borrow some ideas. I mean, whoever sent you a track, I'm sure you can identify another song that you already know that it's in the same family of. Go listen to that song and see what the drums sounded like on that because whoever wrote this song, the new one, probably was influenced by stuff like that. So in their minds, they think like, well, those are the types of drums that go with this type of music. Mm-hmm. So um, and that, that gives you a place to start. And then what Mike said is exactly it. Then you just send a quick thing. Let them know ahead of time. This is not a final take. I just want to know what you think about the tones I've chosen. How do you feel? And then you're off to the races. A little psychology trick. Um, I always keep the click track in those references. So there's no chance that it could be confused that it's a final take. And then when I title the file, it definitely I title it rough take. And then... When I'm going for takes, I title it final take one, final take two, final nice. take three. So there's no gray area or where they can get back to me. God, oh, can we try something different? Like, no, nah, these are the final takes. <laughs> if we need to redo it, that's a whole different discussion. But it, it, yeah, it yeah. works. It's a psychological thing. If you right. say this is the final take one, final take, final take three, they're going to be... All right, cool. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> Checks in the mail. It's so funny. Making uh making drum videos. I mean, that's like it's like final, final one, final two, final three, final oh my god, I hate this video. Final seventy two. It's like, no, seriously, super final dot mp4 dot super final dot h dot two six four. All right, everybody. Uh so we're gonna get through some quick picks of the week. We went kind of deep on that album section there. So we, we will do our featured artists next week and we have some gear review for you guys next week. But for now we've got our picks of the week. Mine is going to be super fast. This is just a track that I want you guys to listen to. Um, I am not the big, biggest Jacob Collier fan. I am a massive fan of his talents, but I have his solo albums and I'm, it's like, that's ah, cool. It's just a little too much harmony and melody for me to handle. But this new track that he has, I just absolutely love this. So um, this is, do I have it? Yeah. Man, I'm flying high today. Come on. Uh, Never mind. That's just uh, Jimmy Branley playing free time jazz. Anyways. (laughs) Dude, I'm freaking nailing it today. It's all you need with Mahalia and Ty Dolla Sign. (laughs) All I need. See, I didn't. Mahalia and Ty Dolla I had sign. it already pulled up. I just needed to hear you <laughs> Caucasianally say Ty Dolla Sign. I mean, how are you supposed to say it? It's got a freaking dollar sign for an S. <laughs> you said it perfect. You said it perfect. All right. So, anyways, uh, we'll put in a little tiny clip of this, but this is just a great song, especially for any of you guys that are working on your Gads and Grooves. And those like double upbeats of E's and us, one E and a two E and a three E and a four E, uh, two. that type of stuff. It's all inside this track, so it's really good to work on your syncopated stabs. And I think you guys will enjoy it. Oh, hi. Hello. Look the way that you're 
my pick of the week I referenced earlier, but it is a John Coltrane box set that, if you're not aware of, it is all available on Spotify. I listen to it on Apple Music, and it's it's the complete Atlantic recordings. So this has everything that Coltrane recorded with Atlantic, which includes his debut record, Giant, Giant Steps, which we talked about earlier, followed by Coltrane Jazz. So those are the two that are like his, I took Bebop as far as it can go, and now it's going to explode. So that's 59, 60, 61. Also in 61, he put out My Favorite Things, which is the debut of the band with Elvin Jones on drums. So it went from the most dense harmonic twist and turns to now we're just going to play a vamp for 15 minutes and just let the band do what it does. Then there's then he shifts into his, you know, it, it's more, I mean, that kind of grows into the more freeform stuff on Olay Coltrane. Then he puts out an all-blues record. Then he goes into the avant-garde. So all of that happened in three years. Three years. <laughs> wow. How is that even possible? Yeah, so just to hear the shift from the bebop to the elven era is fascinating. And those two records came out in the same year. Coltrane Jazz and My Favorite Things both came out in 1961. Wow. So check it out. It's called the, it's called the Heavyweight Champion Complete Atlantic Recordings. It's a great study in the, the music of John Coltrane if you've never really been able to figure out what's going on. It kind of takes you along the journey. So check it out. It sounds like at the end I'll still have no clue what's going on. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, you'll just be able to hear when you hear that shift. You're like, oh, he was, he was, he took bebop as far as it could possibly go. Like, there's no right. way you could do anything more with bebop from what he did on Giant Steps. Oh, now we're going to explore vamps, minor keys. That's vamps. really cool. So it's really, really, really pretty spectacular. I gotta say, I'm worn out. That was a, that was a. We went, we took a deep dive. We did. I, I mean, I was, I was visually going through some of those albums you were talking about like man what was it like to be there and i could i could see the board and i just wanted to be there so bad so i i feel like i experienced it i hope you guys had a great time with us thank you guys for always supporting us we haven't said this in a while but if you get a chance please head on over to itunes and give us a five-star rating write a little review that is the best way for other drummers to find this podcast and that's why this podcast exists is so that we can all be reminded that from beginner to pro, we are all crazy. That, <laughs> that shiitake mushroom crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, nothing to add to that. So we're going to end, end the show with a beat by Paul Kirch. Kirch, is that how you say it? From Tucson, Kirch. Arizona. Yep. So, Get it, Paul. Uh, see you next week. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.